Well, good evening, everyone. Please do take a seat. And please be kind and pass down the Bibles that are under your own. Please do make sure that you've got a Bible and that other people around you have got a Bible. We're going to read together from 1 Corinthians, uh, from verse 18, that is on page 1144. But 1 Corinthians 1, going from verse 18. We're continuing in our series on the gospel tonight. Uh, we've had two weeks so far. Jacob has preached for us. Michael has preached for us. And I'm preaching tonight. My name is Tim. I'm on the staff team. But we're going to read some scripture together. I'm going to pray. Um, so 1 Corinthians, page 1144, starting from verse 18. And Paul writes to a church in Corinth. It's at, in the south of Greece. And he says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you're here by your spirit. Thank you that you're already ministering to us and working among us. Thank you for your great power alive in us. And I pray now that you'd speak to us. God, transform us and shape us. I pray that you'd help me. God, I pray that you'd speak through me. And God, I pray that you'd make us all more like Jesus. Help us reflect and worship you for the wonder of what you've done tonight. Amen. Amen. Uh, just to reiterate, I'm Tim. I work on the church here. And um, this week I made a horrific mistake. Um, I uh, decided to check the part of my phone on an iPhone called Screen Time. And I wonder if you've ever had the chance to do this yourself. They recently gave you an update so you can tell just how much of your life you're wasting. And so I was on a train to Derby on Friday, and among other things, procrastinating from writing this sermon, I decided to check how much I looked at my phone. And I discovered that this week I've checked my phone so many times, and I've looked at it for three hours and 50 minutes a day. I know. Now... Bearing in mind that I use it for emails and YouTube was open and music and Google Maps and blah, 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 blah. That's a lot. Don't ask me how long I spent on Instagram this week because it's genuinely embarrassing. But one of the things you can do when you're checking this part of your phone is you can see how many notifications you have. And, um, you know, I'm like you guys, you know, I'm just normal. I think I don't get many. But this week, I have had 2,459 notifications. Uh, and 1,811 of them are WhatsApp messages. That's ridiculous. Now, when I was writing this on Friday, I noted that I'd had 1,362 WhatsApp messages, and that has gone up by a significant... Sorry, excuse me. Oh, my goodness. Okay, on Friday, overall notifications, 1,362. Now, 2,459. That's ridiculous. In a weekend, I was away with college. I'm trained to be vicar. So, obviously, we didn't spend our whole time learning about God. We spent our whole time talking to one another... But we are so bombarded by messages. I get things all the time. How many messages do you get every, every day? Do you know that Facebook now tracks you? It tracks your, uh, what it considers the emotions of your statuses. It tracks you by the emojis that you use so that it can target you with advertisements that are designed to get you 
when you're most vulnerable. We are bombarded by messages all day long, every day, every day, advertising from our friends, from our phones now. 3,050, that's ridiculous. Something has to change. But Paul says Christians have one message. He says we have one message. In and amongst all the wisdom and the messages of the world, we have one message, and he calls it this. Verse 18, he says it's the message of the cross. The message of the cross. Now, as I said, we're in the middle of a sermon series on the gospel, on this message. And together we're examining you know, the foundational message we carry as Christians. And it's a message that proclaims the amazing love of God. It's a message of hope. It's a message that will lead people into life. But he says this, read with me again, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Two ways to see the gospel. On one hand, he says, those who do not believe it, who are perishing, strong language. He says, the gospel, the message is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, this is the power of God. And as we are in the middle of this series, what I want us to do is trying to take an outside look to consider how does the world see our message? But then actually, I also want us to be challenged. How do we see this message? How do we see the message of the cross? That's where we're going tonight. First thing for us to do, what is the message of the cross? What is it? Well, first and foremost, it's the proclamation of Jesus crucified outside, Gog- you know, outside Jerusalem on a hill in Golgotha. You see, the base of the Christian faith is not an ideology, it's not good ideas, it's not a philosophy, but it's something that happened in history. The basis of our uh, religion, of our faith, is not some ideology. It's what God has done, his saving work in history. We believe that God came in Jesus Christ. He was born. God came as a man, and then he died. This is so specific. Have you seen that film, uh, The Life of Brian, from Monty Python? You know, they got in trouble because it was this depiction, they said, of Jesus. And there's the famous line, the mum is talking about Brian, who's meant to be the Messiah. He's mistaken. And she says, he's not Messiah, he's just a naughty boy. And they got in trouble for it, but I really like that idea. You know, think about Jesus. Jesus had a personality. He might have even been naughty. He had a sense of humor. He was a person in a place at a particular time. And that's the basis of our faith. Because that person in a particular place at a particular time was God. And he would die on a cross. So that's part of what we proclaim. It's God on a cross. Then also it's this. The cross says that we are loved by God and that God came in love. But it also shows us that all of our good ideas and our good deeds and our good works, trying to be good people, doesn't save us before God. Actually, we needed the love and mercy of God shown in Jesus to save us because we cannot save ourselves. The message of the cross is not self-help. But in fact, it shows that we are helpless and that we needed the salvation of Jesus. Because it says we are cut off from God. The word that gets used in our passage is perishing. Actually, without God, we are perishing. And see, the message of the cross is a reference to the judgment that the cross makes on human life. This is what Paul says we declare. And this is where later he'll refer to the offense of the cross. Later he'll refer to the offense because it says that on our own we're separated from him. And we needed salvation. That's what we proclaim. But actually, the only way to receive God, to be reconciled to be God, to be justified, to be adopted, is to trust in what he has done. 
So that's the message. What God has done on the cross at a particular time in history, and then that, what that means for humanity. But he says this message is foolishness. Let's consider. Let's try and step outside. If you're here and you're a Christian, let's try and step outside it. What does the world think? Well, read with me verse 21. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world in its wisdom did not know him. He says that even with all the wisdom of the world, humanity doesn't know God. And, you know, this is true when he wrote it. But think about the progress we've made in 2,000 years. Think about all the scientific achievement and wisdom. Think about all our advancement and technology and medicine and science. But this is still true. In the world, in the wisdom of the world, we don't know God. The wisdom of the world does not lead us to God. And therefore, Paul says this. He asks three questions in verse 20. He says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? And then he asks the fourth question. Has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And those three people, they encapsulate the wisdom of the world. They represent the best of humanity, the progress of humanity. The philosopher, the wise person, the teacher. I wonder who we might put in that category now. But he says that God has made all of that foolish through what he has done in Jesus. But on this theme of wisdom, Paul draws out a contrast. He says that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, but that the world considers the wisdom of God foolish. And though he's talking about humanity, he gets really specific. And he says it's very, very problematic for Greeks and for Jews. Read with me, verse 22. He says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But he says, we don't give them that. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. Let's think about this, why that might be. Why is the message of Christ crucified? Why is it a stumbling block? Why is it foolishness to these people in this particular time, in this place? Let's first think about the Greeks. So he's writing to a church in Corinth, which is in South Greece. And, you know, if you read about it, it gets described as the first and worst city in that place. It has over half a million Greeks, Romans and Jews. Uh, It's got culture, it's got trade, it's bustling and all the things that come with that. Um, But because it's Greek, it has this very strong philosophical tradition. And so this is why Paul adopts a certain rhetorical style. You know those three questions he asks? Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher? Where's the philosopher? That is adopting the rhetorical style of that time. Because what people would come out and do is hear philosophers speak, and they would follow their famous philosopher, and they would have debates, and one philosopher would speak, and another would speak. And so, in Greek society, and in Corinth, wisdom was the ultimate virtue. They thought that God was to be found through rational thought and through philosophy, And through the debating that would happen, they thought that would lead you to the transcendent. That would lead you to wisdom and to God. And, you know, I'm no Greek expert, but the root word for foolishness, it says that the Greeks, the Gentile Greeks, consider the cross foolishness. The root word for that is where we get our word moron from. I don't know how you pronounce it. It's like moronia, you know, moron. They think it's moronic. They think it's idiotic because it doesn't fit in their system. It doesn't fit in their worldview. They consider it totally foolish. And this is where we go back to the point about the measure of the cross being something happening in history. For them, God was to be found through systems of thought. 
And yet Paul was saying, you know, we're preaching what God has done in history. And for them, the idea of a convicted felon being on a cross, that's absurd. Paul, you're a moron. Okay, so that's the Greeks. What about the Jews? Well, for the Jews, he says it's a stumbling block. Why is that? It's because the Messiah was supposed to be a king. The Messiah, they were hoping in one that would come and deliver them. They're hoping in one that would come and overthrow the Roman rule and that would show his power in mighty works. And they understood that that was how you knew who God was. So in Matthew's gospel, you can see people speaking to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. Prove who you are. Prove it. Go on, Jesus. But they understood that it would happen and be demonstrated in power. But of course, can you see that the cross confounds this? Because the cross seems so weak. The idea of God, the promised one, being hung up on a cross to die, being put to death by pagans. I mean, it's insulting. Worse still, the death was crucifixion, which under God's own law in Deuteronomy was declared shameful. In Deuteronomy 21, it says that anyone who hangs on a tree is under God's curse. Anyone who hangs a tree is cursed. You know, crucifixion was a punishment designed by the, and reserved by the Romans for the worst kind of people. So they considered it to be the height of shame. When you read the gospel accounts and you read about uh, what was thought of Jesus, it was not we would focus on the pain of the cross, but the honor and shame culture at the time would focus on the shame of the cross. And for the Jewish people, this was a shame, a thing to be ashamed of. Again, the Greek word uh, for stumbling block is scandalon where we get our word scandal from. It's a scandal. How can God be shamed like that? They cannot get past it. How can God possibly be revealed like that in such weakness? And so Paul says, for the Greeks, it's foolishness. For the Jews, it's a stumbling block. It's blasphemy. But he also says, that Jesus is the very thing that the Jews and the Greeks were searching for, and they didn't even recognize it. Verse 24, he says this, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He says Jews look for power, they look for miraculous signs, and he says Christ is the power of God. He says Greek Gentiles look for wisdom, and he says Jesus is the wisdom of God. But Jesus was God's power and his wisdom displayed in ways that confound the world. Because the power of God looked like surrender. And the victory of God looked like defeat. The throne of Jesus Christ on earth looked like a cross. When Jesus spoke, he would speak in parables. The wisdom of God was hidden. At one point when Jesus is speaking in the Gospels, he praises his Father in heaven. He says, Lord, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise. The wisdom and the power of God confounds what we understand and what we think God would be. And it certainly confounded the Greeks and it confounded the Jews. In fact, it is a message of foolishness. What we carry, what we consider, is a message that the world considers foolish. Let's think, we've thought about the context of this passage. Let's think about our context now. I still think... The world considers our message foolish. I had a great chance to chat to uh, someone about Scientology 
the other day. And that's not something I regularly do. Now, he was a good guy. We had a good chat, you know, thoughtful and reflective. And I think he was, uh, he was probably an atheist, but maybe he was more agnostic. Um, but, you know, he was asking me what I know of this religion. And it isn't much. But in Scientology, there's belief in, you know, alien galactic confederacies. And um, there's things about frozen human souls being shot out of the top of volcanoes. And then there's the need for every human being to get in touch with their past when they were a clam. And so, you know, it's pretty out there. And as you can tell from my tone of voice now, it's not like I said at the time anything necessarily negative about it. But from my tone of voice, this guy understood that I might think that some of that was total nonsense. But what he said to me was, he said, well, yeah, but you're a Christian. And it's all the same to me. I was like, wow, yeah. You know, these foundational truths I've built my life on about the grace of God and the love of God in Jesus Christ compared to clam evolution. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who have not believed it. In fact, it's irrational. And I was trying to think, because it says that Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. What do we think Clapham demands? What do we think London seeks for? What does our culture, what does our society, what does our world seek? You know, on one hand, I think we seek proof, don't we? When it comes to God, prove it. Come on, what have you got? Give me the evidence. In fact, that kind of proof is something that's very scientific. We like to think of ourselves as very rational, very evidence-based. Give me the evidence. You know, I like things that can be shown through experiments that can be repeated. Prove it. But on the other hand, the kind of proof that we seek is actually now very experiential because we understand truth to be something that is, you know, what is true to you? And it's all well and good, someone you telling something and you reading about something, but have you experienced it? You know, because the validation comes from what we experience. And so really what I think Clapham seeks or this world seeks is authenticity. I think that's what people are longing for. They're longing for authentic experiences. They're longing for an authentic sense of who they are as they understand that to be. But how do we know what is authentic? How do we decide what that is? Well, we make it up. We decide what is authentic. Look deeper down inside yourself. And generally, it's connected to feelings. How do you know what's true? Well, what do your feelings say? Look deep down inside yourself and say who you really are. So can you see that even though our culture is so different to the Greeks and the Jews, that actually we might fall into some of the same traps that they do. In fact, we seek after the same things. Paul puts it like this. Verse 25, read with me. He says, The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And he contrasts the foolishness of God with human wisdom. And God's strength with our strength. But our temptation, and it was certainly true of the Greeks and the Jews, and it is certainly true now, is that it is our temptation to rely on our own wisdom and on our own strength. We rely on ourselves. And this is where the gospel really confronts us. This is where the message we carry really, really confronts the world and confronts us. Because it says we need the strength of God. In fact, we need grace. Now, I'm just going to stop just sort of interrupt myself to say, on the other hand, as I think about people responding to the gospel, have you experienced this? As I share share what I do, I was in, there seems to be a thing about me speaking to Uber drivers about Jesus, but I was in an Uber on Friday, 
And the guy said, what's he do? Trainee vicar, blah, blah, blah. And he said, why? And I said, you know, something like, Jesus changed my life and I want to tell others or something. And he's like, great, yeah, great. Uh, you know, you do you. It's that thing again. You do you, boo. I promise I wouldn't say that again. But here we are. Your truth is your truth. That is great for you as long as it doesn't impact me in any way whatsoever. That is great for you. Have you experienced that? We've got this tolerance thing going on. That is okay for you. But what I often find is that when people actually get to what we actually believe and what we actually claim to be true, it is very problematic. Because what we claim is not just true about us, but it's true about them as well. The first problem is sin. You know, we accept that humanity might be flawed, but we suddenly very struggle to see that we might be flawed. And in fact, not just that maybe there's a light shade and a dark shade to us, but somehow that we are inherently sinful. That is very challenging because it counters everything we've ever told ourselves. You know, we say that we're complex maybe, but we're not that bad. I wonder if you've ever seen, uh, there's a Netflix show, it's called The Good Place. And there's an actress called Kristen Bell. And uh, she is in, it's set in the afterlife, and there is a place called The Good Place, and there's also a place called The Bad Place, and she is in The Good Place by mistake. She shouldn't be there, and she gets, the whole drama's around that, and she, you know, she shouldn't be there. She gets worked up about it, and at one point, there's this, she, an outburst, and she says, I just want to say for the record that this whole good place, bad place is rubbish. There should be a medium place for people like me, who kind of sucked, but in like a fun, chill way. People like me who kind of sucked, but in like a fun, chill way. And as soon as that was said, I was like, yes, that's what we think. Yeah, you know, I'm not too bad. You know, maybe I am, but like in a kind of cool way. You know, I'm okay, really. I haven't murdered anyone. Well, I hope you haven't. I mean, if you have, you know, let's talk, let's pray. Um, But what we get down to and what the message of cross confronts us with is that we flipping need grace because we cannot save ourselves. And we have such trouble accepting that. Because what we get told throughout our lives is, earn your way. You get what you deserve. You know, life is fair and it works out, so work hard and do everything you can. But what the cross shows is that is our human strength and our human wisdom, the things that we rely on for the whole rest of our lives, count for nothing before the Lord. And what counts alone is the blood of Jesus Christ. And it insults our ability and our ambition. The cross insults our ability because it says, you don't bring anything to the party. You know, if... Coming before the Lord is like some dinner party. You don't even bring crisps and dip, that most offensive of gifts to bring. You know, if someone ever says, yeah, we're having like a shared meal, and you bring crisps and dip, oh, shocking. That's the easiest thing to bring. It's so lazy. Don't do that, HCC, okay? Shared meal, don't bring crisps and dip. Anyway, you don't bring anything to the party before God. You don't contribute anything. It insults our ability But the cross also insults our ambition because it says, you don't get the glory. God gets the glory. You you know, there's a very sort of stern phrase from Christian tradition. It says, you know, you don't contribute anything to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Oh, oh, yeah. But the cross insults us because it says, you don't bring anything to this. It is grace alone. This always comes up on Alpha. At the moment, I'm running Alpha again, and I'm really appreciating the chance to go through the course with a bunch of thoughtful, lovely, kind, fun people. And we're trying to be quite objective about truth claims and the Christian claims. But again, the question has come up, and it always comes up in some form around grace. It often comes up as, you know, what about people who just get to the end of their lives and then say they're sorry? You know, they do anything you like, 
and then say sorry? Why can't we all do that? And I think it's a pretty reasonable question. But of course, that question is based on the assumption that what we do counts, what we do matters. Now again with this, don't hear me wrong, that's not to say that we aren't called as Jesus Christ to live for him. It's just that God doesn't need our good deeds, but our neighbours do. I wonder if you can see the difference. We, spend, we find grace so problematic. And the cross confronts us with that. It says, you need what only God can provide. Our cross says that you cannot earn the love of God. You cannot purchase it. In fact, the love of God is a gift to be received. How do you receive it? Well, it says that God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe, not those who are moral, not those who succeed, not those who attain wisdom, not those who do things in their own strength, not those who buy HTC-branded keep cups, although that gets you pretty close to heaven. No, it says God is pleased to save those who believe, those who trust in what God has done on the cross and not in what they can do. Those who trust in the wisdom and strength of God, even though the world might consider such things foolish. And the promise of God is that he will save all those who do. And this is salvation for eternal life. Jago spoke on this two weeks ago. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Our salvation is for eternity but also, it's for the here and now. My dad has this great, it's full of truth, but, you know, kind of terrible phrase, that becoming a Christian, you know, it's not just pie in the sky when you die, but it's steak on the plate while you wait. It's not pie in the sky when you die, it's steak on your plate while you wait. Thanks, Dad. Great. But it's true. God brings transformation and healing and hope in the here and now. Michael spoke on this last week. Jesus said, I came to bring beauty for ashes and joy for mourning and praise instead of despair. As God is at work in our life, as we get adopted into his family, he begins to bring his healing and hope and his transformation in us. We begin to become more like Jesus Christ, in spite of all our efforts to do everything against that. God is at work in us, and God brings that as we believe. God brings that as we believe. Because one answer to the cross is to say it's foolish, but the other answer is to say that we believe, and then it says that the message of the cross is the power of God for those who are being saved. The power of God. So what we've tried to do tonight, we tried to say what did, you know, when Paul's writing to that context of grief and Corinth, what was he trying to say? What was their particular problem? And actually what we've tried to do there is just say that actually that's actually really indicative of humanity's problem with the cross. Our problem, because of the way it confronts our self-sufficiency and our reliance on our own wisdom and strength. And therefore I need to ask us, I need to ask us tonight, How do you see the cross? And I want to ask this for the first time, but especially for those who have already believed. As you've come tonight, how do you consider the cross? Because I think it's very possible to have believed, to have received the truth of God, to have delighted in it, but to live as if it weren't true. And actually to live without the effect of it not informing us in any way. In fact, what it's possible to do is to have believed but rely again on our own wisdom and strength. The very things that come under God's wisdom and strength. Why is that? Well, the passage describes salvation in such a unique way. 
And it shows us why this might be the case. Did you notice in verse 18 that it describes those who are being saved? Those who are being saved. Present continuous tense. Being saved. Now, what we might want to say, ah, the gospel means I am saved. Something has happened. And yes, of course, that is true. In fact, this passage says that as well. It says that God was pleased to save those who believed. But this passage also says that God's, the measure of the cross is power for those who believe as they are being saved. This shows us that salvation is multidimensional. It means that, you know, Christians believe, we believe that as we are saved, we are saved from the punishment of sin. And we move from death to life, we're adopted. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. But we also believe that God's spirit is at work in us and therefore we are being saved from the power of sin. But we also believe that one day we will be saved from even the presence of sin as we stand before Jesus Christ. Excuse you. And so salvation is not just a one-time thing, but actually something God does in us. But that means it's very possible to have been saved, but still need the transformation of God. And that means it's very possible to have believed the truth of the gospel, and yet it not be impacting us. There's a couple ways I see this happening. The first is that we begin to think again that we need to earn God's love. And even though we might assent, in, assent intellectually to the fact that, you know, salvation is through faith alone, through grace alone, we don't contribute anything, we can begin to think again. We can begin to act as if we need to earn God's love somehow. And the second way we begin to look at our own, uh, work on our own strength and wisdom is that because of what we do, because of shame so often, we can feel separated from God's love. And we don't live with the truth that those whom the Son has set free are free indeed. Shame is a liar. Shame comes to counter what God has said. There may be many of us here tonight. We have come, maybe full of the joys of spring. You're ready to sing to the Lord tonight. Michael was speaking about this last week. Maybe you've come here tonight. You're like, yeah, I'm so ready to praise God. But many of us will come. Well, actually, I'm really aware of what I've done. And I feel far from God. I can really relate to this. I've been a Christian, I think, basically all my life. I often say, you know, I gave my life to God when I was five. And I, yeah, I did prayer, prayer with mum. But actually, I don't remember a time when I don't know God. And so really, if I have a testimony, it's a testimony about my like, small moments of grace in my life rather than one big one where everything changed. It's actually me coming back to God again and again and again and going, thank you so much. Thank you so much for saving me. And God in his grace, especially as I was a teenager, and then especially recently, I'll come before the Lord and I'm just so aware of my need for him. But I'm so, it's come so clear to me of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Because I come before God, especially with what I have done, and I feel ashamed. Patterns of thought, things I've looked at, things I've said. But the cross says we're forgiven. The cross says we're covered. The cross said there is nothing we can do to be separated from the love of God. The resurrection declares that death has been defeated. And this is why it is so important that the foundation of faith is not just good ideas, but that it is good news. It is because the message of the cross is the power of God for our salvation. It is the power of God. And even when we are unfaithful, which we will be, 
God is faithful. And even when life is painful, which it will be, God is near. And even when like, we feel like we have separated ourselves from God again, God says, I'm still here. I've, my sin, your sin cannot possibly separate you from me again. Any circumstance of your life, whether that is internal or external, nothing you can do can separate, me, separate you from my love. As far as the east is from the west, said Joshua earlier. As far as the east is from the west, that is how far God has removed everything in our past from everything that is in our future. And so tonight, have you drunk deeply again of the grace of God? Have you delighted yourself? Have you refreshed yourself in the fact that it does not depend on your strength? As you come before God, it does not depend on you. It depends entirely on the work of Jesus Christ, on the finished work of Jesus Christ, who on the cross took every curse and every sin upon himself and so bore for us what we deserved. And then rose again and is now seated with God and has defeated death forever. And therefore, as you come to him tonight, it does not depend on what you do. And you can rely and trust and thank God again for what he has done. You are free tonight. If you have trusted in God, you are free. Hear God's declaration of freedom over you. Even as you are saved and are being saved. Even as you do the things you don't want to do. Even as you don't honor God perfectly. God has grace for us. God has grace for us. Tonight we're going to take communion. Tonight we're going to remember what God has done. And tonight, can I encourage you to say once again to the Lord, I don't want to rely on my own wisdom and my own strength. I want to rely entirely on yours. Even though the world might think it foolish. Even though I sometimes might think it foolish. If you're not sure where to begin, begin with thankfulness. Begin with thanking God for what he has done. Maybe tonight this is actually the first time you need to do that. I urge you to give your life to God. I urge you with everything I have to give your life to God, to turn from everything and give yourself to him. But I urge us all to do that. I urge us all to come again before God and see and thank him for what he has done. Because the message of the cross is God's power to save those who are being saved, to deliver those who are being delivered. It is God's power at work for us. Why don't we stand together? I want to pray and we're going to take communion together. Lord, I thank you for the way that you speak. And I pray now that what you've said through me tonight would remain with us. Anything that's of me, I pray that it would fall away. God, thank you for the transformation you bring. Thank you for the hope that you bring. I pray that we'd be able to taste and see of it again tonight. I pray that we'd be able to taste and see of your goodness. I pray that you would grace for us all now to grasp what you've done. Lord, I pray that you'd help those of us who feel stuck in shame. Lord, I pray that you'd help those of us who are relying again on what we do. Jesus, I pray that you'd be Lord of all of our lives. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done, and we remember you now. Amen.